0: Welcome to the New Schools Podcast. Over her 20 years as a middle and high school teacher, Jessica Leahy began to suspect that the way we parent children has a direct impact on their motivation, learning, resilience, and the development of obsessive perfectionism and performance anxiety. Her research in those areas resulted in the New York Times best-selling book, The Gift of Failure. the best parents learn to let go so their children can succeed. In it, she details how allowing children to experience failure is an integral part of becoming successful, resilient, and self-reliant adults. Her second book, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence will be released in April 2021. Jessica writes about education, parenting, and child welfare for The Atlantic, Vermont Public Radio, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. She is a member of the Amazon Studios Thought Leader Board and wrote the educational curriculum for Amazon kids, The Stinky and Dirty Show. She is the co-host of Hashtag AmWriting podcast, a show about writing, reading, and getting things done. Jessica earned a bachelor's in comparative literature from the University of Massachusetts and a JD with a concentration in juvenile and education law from the University of North Carolina School of Law. She lives in Vermont with her husband and two sons. Today's discussion is on many topics, among them, getting support around non-directive and free-range parenting styles, how learning opportunities get lost when parents step in to rescue their children, what parents should look for in a school, and how we can foster intrinsic motivation in learners. And now I'll turn the mic over to your host, Shannon Falkenstein, speaking with Jessica Leahy.
1: Hello. Jessica Leahy, and thanks so much for being on the New Schools podcast. We're so happy to have you here today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's always so much fun to get to talk about this stuff.
1: Right? I agree. I can't wait to dive in here. So so first question is, would you tell us what is your favorite thing about working with young learners?
2: Oh, Favorite thing. Well, I've taught every grade from six to 12. And I I have to admit, I do have favorite, I do have some favorite sections in there and definitely middle school. So like I love sixth, seventh and eighth grade. Um, when I was teaching in middle school, I was teaching a jam packed schedule of, uh, Latin six, seven, and eight writing seven and eight English seven and eight. And so it was, it was just nuts. And so that was, um, Oh, so in Latin seven and eight. And yeah, it was it was just crazy. I was It was so much time. And there's something really, for me, magical about seventh and eighth grade. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that, and there's a reason the gift of failure came out of teaching middle school, I think, is that what it's really about is these kids who do not have the frontal lobes to handle all of the stuff we throw at them for middle school. And so, you know, as a middle school teacher, our job is to be as flexible as possible to watch these kids screw up over and over and over again and approach them when they're in that great, when they're in that learning, you know, ready moment, you know, not necessarily when I'm ready, not necessarily when like the start, but they have to be ready to learn. And that to me is really freeing because later on, you know, and I've taught, like I said, through 12th grade, um, every grade from six to twelve. The older they get, you know the stakes get higher they 're supposed to have their frontal lobe uh, lo- more online where our expectations go up for them, whereas with middle school there 's this freedom in look this is like kids screwing up all over the place, and that 's the vibe that 's the thing that 's the goal of middle school, and that 's what makes it such an incredible experience for people who love that age group and I totally get, you know, there are times when I talk about how much I love teaching middle school, people are like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> you know, just like, you know, the, the last five years of my teaching career were with kids who had, for the most part, failed out of regular school systems altogether, um, just not in terms of actual Fs, but in terms of just it wasn't working for them, and they had issues with substance abuse. So for me, those kids were really fun, too, because there's this freedom to try Lots of creative ways to make learning happen. I mean, it really comes down to, you know, these kids who are in rehab, and they don't want to be in rehab, and they really, really, really don't want to be required to go to school in rehab. So my job becomes all about engagement, there's really hardly anything else that I have to deal with. And so on a daily basis, I have to have like 12 possible lesson plans, see what people will engage with and what they won't, um, be a little bit more flexible and realize that I have to, you know, teach those kids right there in front of me in that moment, as opposed to some imaginary idea of who I had, you know, who I thought might be in the classroom in front of me on a given day. Um, And they're dealing with, you know, When you take the drugs away, they're dealing with um, all the traumas they didn't want to have to deal with before. And so emotionally, they're completely fragile. And somehow, that freedom to understand that it's going to be a mess, both in middle school and with those kids that I was teaching in the inpatient drug and alcohol rehab, there's something really appealing about that. And I guess that must come down to. It's crazy that I'm about to say this because I never would have said this about myself, but you have to have a certain... Comfort with chaos, or comfort with flexibility, or comfort to like turn on a dime and say, "Eh, this isn't working. Let's do something else." And I really like that a lot. I like being kept on my toes by kids, and uh, so I think the middle school and the sort of kids who don't fit anywhere else and are having a lot of issues—those kids really um, appeal to me for some reason. So nice.
1: I'm getting two yeah. things are coming to me there. Is like improvisational, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and follow the child, you know, like follow. the. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What what else
2: are you doing? (laughs) Right. And kids know when you don't see them, hear them, get them. They know when you're faking it. They know, you know, it's, that's one of the freeing things about it too, is that I'm subjected all the time to criticism about what I'm doing. And it may not come in the form of a kid saying, look, this lesson stinks and you need to come up with something else, but it'll come in the form of them turning and looking out the window or them getting angry or them, you know, acting out in some way. And I I love the challenge of what's going wrong here and how do I fix it? Which is, I guess, one of the reasons I'm also a fan of trauma-informed teaching because it all comes down to not how do you deal with the misbehavior in question, but why is that misbehavior happening? And how can I be creative in ways that solve, try to get at the root cause as opposed to just fixing the symptom of the root cause. So there's a lot of, I don't know, I love the problem solving involved in, in and, you know, there's, there's nothing less complicated I think than, than teenagers. And so I think that's what makes it really fun for me.
1: Yeah. Wow. I really relate to that. When I was, uh, teacher in conventional school, I was a middle school science teacher and I really loved mm-hmm. that liminal age and also felt there was a ton of freedom there yeah, uh, and a ton of creativity that I yeah. think is usually really yeah. untapped nowadays. I
2: think there, the one thing, the, the when you said that thing about liminal, it also occurred to me that when people ask me what my least favorite kids to teach are within that range. I have to say there's something about the transition years that's really hard. Like ninth grade is my particular least favorite year to teach, I guess, out of all of them. Um, Mainly because ninth grade, there's so many high school, um, many high schools sort of set them up in such a way that the classes don't tend to be as challenging for them or they're not um, differentiated quite enough. Everyone's just kind of get to know each other and they're afraid. I mean really freshmen are kind of like you know deer in headlights in terms of social stuff and um, and so for that reason I think ninth graders it's just a really tough year to to teach and people who do it really well I have so much respect for them Um, but for me anyway it's it's just there's enough Year going on that it sort of interrupts the process. So,
1: yeah, I can see that. So, you wrote an amazing book called "The Gift of Failure," and uh, I think it's a very courageous book because it's actually asking parents, educators, to to do something that feels radically different and feels risky, given the context of parenting in this age. So will you tell us a little bit about your book and also Mm -hmm. about like what happened to get you to that point of writing it? Yeah. Um, so I was teaching middle school
2: at the time. I was increasingly frustrated with the parents of my students because those learning moments that I was telling you about, you know, the kid who hasn't been bringing his homework to school or hasn't, you know, he's just really discombobulated and things aren't going well. He's not really using his plan book. Right. And then I, you know, I'm waiting for just the right learning moment to happen. And then often what would happen is the parent would sort of swan in and solve the problem for the kid. And that, Takes away the learning moment for me. Whether it's you know the parent delivering the lost homework, or the parent delivering the cleats that the kid forgot to bring to school, that kind of thing. So you know every time the parent rescues, that learning opportunity is lost, and it was making me so angry. Which you know, as a teacher, one of the worst places I can be is angry at the parents of my students because the better the homeschool relationship, the more learning happens. Um, the other issue is you know I was um, I like to joke I was on a really high horse about it too, because I was doing the exact same thing to my own kids, just not recognizing that I was doing it. I had like this barrier between my teacher brain and my parent brain and the things that I was doing that were working so well with my students at school, I wasn't doing with my own kids. And so for me, it came out of that sort of frustration with the parents and then, but the problem is I was writing, um, I was blogging at that point. I I hadn't been published anywhere big, I don't think. I was blogging as a teacher, which is great. It's a really great exercise for sort of breaking down what you do and figuring out what works and what doesn't work. And I love reading other teachers' blog posts about what they do and what works and what doesn't work. And um, I wrote this study came out about um, the effect of helicopter parenting on motivation and learning and what it was doing to schools. And it came out of Australia. And so all of a sudden I was able to talk about the stuff that I was frustrated about without actually talking about the parents of my own students, which, you know, is really helpful. What was funny though, is when the article, so I wrote the article and instead of just, um, you know, posting it to my blog, I submitted it to the Atlantic and that was actually my first piece that ever ran in the Atlantic. And that piece went viral. And then that piece actually went on to become the genesis of the gift of failure. So uh, it was, it really came out of wanting something better for my students, realizing I was falling short for my own kids and wanting to do better for my own kids, starting to recognize with the research around motivation and the research around um, learning and how so-called helicopter parenting, or whatever it is you want to call it, whether it's directive or controlling parent parenting, how that affects kids' learning. All that research started to come together, and I realized, oh, this all fits together in a package that looks a heck of a lot like a book. So yeah, that's sort of how the genesis of that story happened. And I was teaching middle school, you know, for six years during that period, and sort of had a lot of you know personal anecdotes to build on but I also knew a lot of teachers at that point so all of a sudden teachers are coming to me with all these stories so it was great I got to interview just many 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 teachers all the way from k-12 to 12 and a lot of college professors as well so it was a incredible eye-opening my parenting changed my teaching cha- my teaching changed a ton based on the research from the book so um, I think I hope that I'm a better parent and teacher for it Um, but who knows? I don't know. My kids are in the other room. We'll see what they say, I suppose.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, um, okay. So let's say you're a parent listening and you're like, okay, wait a minute. Like, what are the red flags about my parenting that I might need to take a look at? Or what are the red flags about my teaching if I'm an educator that I might need to take a look at?
2: When parents ask me sort of what to keep an eye out for. I tell them to think about the best teachers they've ever had, how, you know, if you are confused about something or something's not working for you or you're having a problem and your kid and um, your kid, sorry, your kid is having issues with something and they ask you for help, your automatic answer shouldn't be to give them the answer or to reteach the whole thing to them. Your automatic answer should be to support them in thinking through the problem and saying, well, you know, especially if it comes down to homework, like, you know you're having trouble with number 6 but look you did really well with number 4 so what is it you did with number 4 that you can apply to number 6 you know those sort of as a teacher my job is often to stand there while they explain to me what they don't understand and as they're explaining to me they work it out in their own head and they tell me to go away that they got it on their own and i think being a little bit more in sort of that kind of parent is a good place to start but Remembering that the words, so when you look at like helicopter parenting or so-called controlling parenting, the phrase that I like the best is directive because- It really explains what we're talking about, which is when you are the kind of parent or the kind of teacher or the kind of coach or the kind of mentor, whatever it is, where you're constantly feeding your kid the next step, the next direction, the next thing to do, and not sort of answering a lot of why questions or or reflecting back to them and asking them how what they think the next step should be. Um, if you're constantly giving your kids sort of those step-by-step-by-step-by-step by step by step by step directions, that's directive. And the problem is is that when you do that, you don't give your kid the space to sort of get frustrated and sort of wrestle with those feelings of frustration and be a little bit comfortable with being frustrated and thinking okay, well, I need to just take a breath, I need to step back. So kids who are really directed by teachers, parents, coaches, whatever, tend to have very low tolerance for frustration and tend to give up really easily, especially for tasks that are a little bit above their ability level. Whereas Kids who have had what's called autonomy, supportive parenting, teaching, coaching, tend to have a little more comfort with frustration, tend to be the kind of kids who can sort of, you know, take a breath, figure it out, and push through without having to sort of go to someone else for the answer. And the reason that's so important is that, some of the most important teaching tools, some of the most powerful teaching tools I have, and that coaches have, and that parents have, as you know, and teachers, is um, come down to this thing called desirable difficulties. And it's described beautifully in a book called Make It Stick out of Harvard University Press. And desirable desirable difficulties sort of require kids to just stick their toe over their ability level a little bit, a little bit. just sort of think about, um, you know, in, as a parent or as a teacher, giving kids tasks that are just a little bit above their ability level, just a little bit difficult for them to parse and figure out instead of, you know, here are all the steps to get to the answer. Here's the process, here are some facts about it, and while you sort of figure out how all those pieces fit together. And what's cool about Desirable Difficulties is it helps kids learn more deeply in the short term and more durably over the long term. It bypasses short-term memory and goes straight to encoding into long-term memory. And so, um, you know, that's what I need is for kids to not just shove it into their short-term memory and regurgitate it to me later. I need kids who really have encoded the information and understand it and can manipulate it for new context. And that's what desirable difficulties achieve. And kids who have been highly directed are more likely to give up when faced with the desirable difficulties. So you can see how, you know, the way we parent kids, hoping that like if we or here's another term, snowplow parenting. If we snowplow everything out of the way and we make it easy for them and we sort of pave the way ahead of them, um, then they're going to be less able to, less primed to learn over the long term. So anytime I'm sort of tempted to, you know. St- step in and fix something for my kids or do something for my kids. I think about the learning opportunity that's going to be lost. You know, do I want my kid to do it perfectly in this moment? Or would I prefer that my kid can do it himself next time? And I try to always look for that next time. It's all about process over sort of the end product right now and less thinking in that sort of emergency state that a lot of us find ourselves in as parents, like this homework has to be perfect and this soccer game has to go just right and this thing has to be just perfect. Um, I'd rather have this thing not be perfect and have my kid be able to do it themselves next time or understand how to do better next time. That's always my goal is the next time.
1: I hear you. I sounds like you're talking about, I heard another concept, anti-fragile. Yeah. Right. And also it's like meta learning. So it's like, yeah, yeah, this is this homework. Right. Not that big of a deal, low stakes, but the learning how to learn to master yourself and your habits and your frustration and all that is like a gift that will give for the rest of your life because Lord knows when you get older, there's a lot of that, right? (laughs)
2: Well, and as humans, we're terrible at metacognition, which is knowing what we do and don't know. And so anytime you give your kid an opportunity to figure out what they do and don't know, which is how, for example, um, in schools currently, well, not currently, Traditionally, the way we've assessed kids in schools is with, you know, like the big test at the end of unit one, which is called a cumulative or summative assessment. And those are not great for learning. Um, What is great for learning is formative, frequent formative assessments. And formative assessments are so magic because not only does it form my teaching because I can see what I messed up and what I did well and what people know and what they don't know, but it helps the kid exercise a little bit of metacognition as well because they're on a constant basis having to reevaluate what they thought they knew and what they didn't know and oh my gosh, how am I going to you know go back and how am I going to talk to Mrs. Leahy and help, have her help me to you know get me to a point where I understand it better. But that sort of meta. I think of meta stuff a lot when I'm teaching because helping kids understand how they think and helping kids understand how their brain works is actually one of the more powerful things you can do to help them become better learners and thinkers, which is great because I'm all about the how. I'm all about the like, but why does it work this way? Uh And helping
1: kids understand that is really great. That's so great. So when I was reading your book and you talk about kind of growing up in the like we did kind of in the 70s and the 80s, the latchkey kid thing. And we would just like get on our bikes and ride out, build a fort, go wherever. I mean, I I remember riding on the back of a stranger's motorcycle in a bathing suit, no shoes and no helmet down like a major road when I was maybe nine. So that's yeah. now- if, maybe like, not well, recommended, or, but like, yeah. That maybe was like very lucky that I came <laughs> yeah. okay? But I'm just making the point that we yeah, have exactly. Your childhoods and our parents were not judged for that. Whereas now, if I just like let my son and my daughter yeah. go and run free and wild, you know, other parents will be like calling the police or talking to right. other people about me or something like that. So um, how do, you know, I want to go straight to like, this small tribe of parents that would like to have a more wild and happy childhood for our mm-hmm. kids and free childhood. Sorry. How do we do that? I feel like we're risking belonging. We're risking judgment. We're risking a lot to be able to do that. I feel like we all need to kind of bond together and agree that we're just going to let kids be wild again. Um, but unfortunately, I don't know a lot of parents around me that are going to be yeah. able to do this with me. And you know, I have different challenges too, because I'm living in a, different place that has a lot more security risk but but anyway could you talk a little bit about that
2: Yeah. So one of the big comments I get, and actually one woman followed me out to my car once after a speaking engagement, she said, look, I'm totally on board, totally get this. I need to give my kids more autonomy, help them feel more competent. Um, But I can't be the first first parent to do it. Because if I'm the first parent to do it, then I look like the bad parent, right? The teacher's going to think that I'm not on the ball. The other parents are going to think that I'm not doing my job, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to look terrible. And And I totally get that. The other problem is there's this whole like, okay, well, kids need to go out and play with other kids and do the whole kick the can until the sun goes down thing. But right now is kind of a weird time to talk about this because of COVID, but- but the reality is, is that I could send my kid out there every day. But, but the problem is, is that there aren't a lot of other kids out there doing that because they're all at violin class and soccer, traveling soccer league and all that stuff. So it's a wonderful, you know, my wish would be that, you know, we in our neighborhood, it was big kids against little kids, which I guess wasn't the most fair um, competition. But and we did terrible things to the little kids now that I it occurs to me, but you know there was a lot of that sort of being out there and just sort of you know making up our own rules and doing you know i can put all sorts of labels to it like you know we're going to go out there and build a fort in the woods we have to exercise things like self directed executive function and planning and goal setting and all that stuff that helps kids sort of take charge of of tasks and plan them out and and it gives you all kinds of practice for things that we'll need later but that rosy glow childhood thing doesn't really exist for a lot of kids anymore. And so my saying that we should be doing this is, you know, is a little disingenuous. So in the context of trying to understand, so I do a lot of helping parents understand, um, you know, a lot of their fears, I write a lot, I've written in the past quite a bit about sort of how we calculate risk and, and our fears and how that can be really off base. I've written about that for the Washington Post. Um, for example, I was at a school recently where the number one fear was that their kids were going to be stolen and sex trafficked. And yet, at that school, um, <laughs> and it, it just so happens that at that school, they had a, um, a policy that said that kids couldn't be um, gay. That it was. They were not. Um, they were not accepting of LGBTQ kids. Well, the biggest risk factor for sex trafficking for kids is to be rejected by your parents and to be rejected by your community. And so it was a really weird situation to be in, where I'm trying to explain to them that you know you may be really worried about your kids being sex trafficked, but let me explain to you why. You know, telling them to put on their seatbelt. Um, being accepting of your kid, making sure that you don't have prescription medications in your medicine cabinet just lying around, that those things are a much bigger risk to your kid than the sex trafficking threat. Not that that's not a threat for some kids, but Let's put things into a perspective and understand that we tend to react with great fear to things that are emotionally um, provocative. And anyway, so helping parents um, mitigate their fear. If you, speaking of free range kids, Lenore Skenazy, who wrote Free Range Kids, now has a website that's just wonderful. An organization called Let Grow and Let Grow um, on Let Grow and on what used to be Free Range Kids, she had a page. If you Google free-range kids and reassuring crime statistics, you'll come up on a page that really show, it's a great thing to be able to point parents to, to say, look, there, it hasn't been safer to be a kid in decades and decades. And so some of these worries you have, maybe you can just sort of chill. And, you know, it's easy to say that, but these things feel real and they feel scary because the media just want to scare the bejesus out of us um, at every turn. And so, you know, it's really, you have to push a little bit, you have to push back You have to stop listening to the people who are trying to rile us up. And the problem is often the people who are trying to rile us up are other parents. And so for me, you know, and I wrote a piece about this for the Atlantic called why back to school night made me feel like a bad parent because I got to back to school night feeling pretty good, feeling pretty great. And I was nearly hyperventilating by the time everyone stopped talking about like the tutoring and the traveling cello and the traveling soccer and the, all these things. Whereas, you know, I knew going into it that everything was cool and things were going pretty well. And yet I started to doubt myself because of this very contagious pressured parents phenomenon thing that, um, Wendy Grolnick writes about really, um, articulately in her book, um, anxious parents, pressured kids or pressured parents, anxious kids. Um, so yeah, it's, we do it to each other and we need to just knock it the heck off. So find parents who think the same way you do and, and seek, you know, seek some, some solace and some support in those parents. You know, when I, my friend's kids, we our kids are all applying to college at the same time. And so we jokingly say that we are allowed to smack each other across the face. If we start to freak out and little things like saying, you know, the one thing I realized is that when my older kid applied to college was that, um, one small thing I could do to show him that this was not about me, that this, I was not going to be taking taking my sort of parenting report card based on where he ended up going to college was I said, look, sweetie, this is a really personal decision for you. And the one thing I will not do is put a sticker on the back of my car. This is the, the college you end up going to is I don't get bragging rights in the grocery store parking lot because of your educational choices. So that was our small symbolic act to say, you know, you're yourself, you're your own person over here. I'm the parent. I'm not going to be looking to you to be like my parenting report card. And having friends that support you in that same sort of thinking, that's been invaluable. And I have two close friends who really were constantly supporting each other in in that kind of thinking.
1: Wow. I love that. I think that's a great test case. Like, how do you feel about the sticker on the back of the car that parents can think about <laughs> that? Does that represent a grade for your parenting or are you like, I love you. It's your journey. Right. Me, I do, I'm agnostic. I don't care where you go to college or if you want to be a clown, like we say it at, right. at Acton. Right. I don't care if you want to be a clown. Right. Just go and be the best clown that you can be. Yeah. You know, like we're, we're agnostic as to how they turn out. Um well and that
2: may be someone else's thing you know just for me that was the one thing and actually that one of the other parents I'm talking about is KJ Delantonia who wrote this wonderful book called How to be a Happier Parent And how to be a happier parent is essentially, she asked parents what they thought was really going well with their parenting and what was really going poorly with their parenting. And then she took the six topics that sort of people complained about the most, like mornings, homework, dinner, chores, sports. I can't remember what else. And then she went and looked at the research on, um, not only talked to parents who thought they were doing those things well and learned from those parents, but also looked at the research on like, you know, forming habits and how to get kids motivated and all that sort of stuff. So having KJ on my on my side is um has been great because we can bounce stuff off of each other and we constantly sort of turn each other's brains around when it comes to sort of, you know, oh, I should have thought about it that way. Okay, I'm calm
1: now. I'm good.
2: <laughs> we can move on. So
1: that's great. So maybe we could dig mindfully into the parent That, that exactly what you're talking about, like looking at where is this fear coming from? Like, why are we all, what are we all so afraid of? Like, what's the boogeyman that we're Mm -hmm. all so afraid of as to why we can't let go and why we grab the glue gun and things like that. Like what, what is that? Partially, I think it's just this
2: perception that, that there are no, there are no get out of jail free cards, that everything matters. Like it used to be that middle school was so great because the pressure wasn't on quite yet. And it could be a little more relaxed than high school. And that's not as much true anymore. My I'm Now middle school is all about, you know, and that's, that's even leaving out like places like New York City, where, you know, the right kindergarten, you have to do the right kindergarten to get the right blah, blah, blah. Um, but it also depends on who you ask. I mean, there's, um, There's a lot of, uh, there's a whole chapter in Gift of Failure about sort of how we got here, and a lot of it comes down to economics. This is one of the first, this is the first, this past generation was the first generation that couldn't automatically expect their kids to do better than we did. Um, You look at the college situation, I mean, again, it's a weird time right now to be talking about this, but um, for a lot of different reasons. The media loves to just go on and on about how your kid's never going to get into college. It's so competitive now. Places that, the places you and I win, our kids can never get in there anymore. It's impossible. That's not true. It's true for like uh, the very, very top tier of colleges um, have gotten more selective, but there are 2,800 colleges, accredited colleges in universities in the United States. And almost, you know, all but a tiny sliver at the top are still fully within the reach of most kids. Um, There's the fact that we're having fewer kids. There's the fact that we're having uh, kids older and after more education and more time in the workforce. And then we sort of are used to having a lot of short-term evaluations on our progress. And without that, we tend to look to our kids to be our short-term evaluation of our process, our progress. So we're looking at their grades. We're looking at the number of goals they get. And we're like, okay, I'm doing great because my kid is successful. And I can't even imagine my parents judging their own worth as human beings based on, you know, I know they're proud of me, but like during high school, they never picked my classes for me. You know, I checked in with them about grades and stuff like that, but it was never about oh, I can't be seen with my friends talking, you know, if you get a C in chemistry, that was just sort of not a part of the mix. And it very much is now it's, you know, people looking to their kids to be their report card for their parenting is, is very much a reality for parents now.
1: Wow. That's so interesting. So it's right. It's like, we're judging our own progress based on what our children are doing, which is kind of not really fair to them. And Oh my gosh! It's so unfair, us, yeah, because, so unfair to them. so unfair to them, and it's and it leads us to empower s- them constantly. Yes, to try to yes, like up our marks. <laughs> right. Right. We're well, not only that, selfish we, in the
2: end. Absolutely, we're co-opting their successes as evidence of our successes, and so all of a sudden we take ownership of something that should be all theirs. Right. And you know, there have been moments, you know, in my kids' lives where I realized, wow, they're taking my ability to co-opt it away from me on purpose. You know, My kid screwed something up once and it was really kind of complicated, but he screwed something up and it was gonna mess up his summer job. It had to do with an accreditation he needed for something. And so he didn't tell me about it. It was a big deal at the time. He didn't tell me about it and he figured it out by himself and solved it on his own and came to me after the fact and said, you know, by the way, two weeks ago, I really screwed this thing up, but I didn't tell you about it at the, at the time because I really wanted to be the one to fix it because it was my fault. And there, that moment for me, seeing my kid so proud of himself for the way he handled it all on his own and realizing the reason he didn't tell me is because he really wanted to be able to handle it on his own without my interference. That was a huge moment of, okay, this kid's going to be okay because- he doesn't need me to fix things for him. And I, you know, I would have been all over it and I don't know that I would have been any more successful than he was, but I certainly would have worked really hard at it (laughs) and taken all of his sense of pride away. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's a great story. So um, what would you say to parents looking for a school environment that is kind of more related to what you're talking about that, that, believes in the gifts of failure that believes in growth mindset um what are what are the kind of aspects that uh parents should look for in a school
2: you know i was really careful not to attach a particular s- uh, educational theory to my uh to the book i will say that i particularly love speaking in montessori <laughs> schools um you know it's preaching to the choir i got to i got to speak at the big huge um, international Montessori, uh, conference in San Diego a couple of years ago. And, you know, it's, it's a whole bunch of people who totally get why it's so important for kids to be more self-directed. And, um, so I think, I think that's a really important part of it. If you're looking at an educational environment, in fact, we just had to do this. So we just moved two years ago from New Hampshire to Vermont and we had to move pretty quickly, but we also knew that there were a range of educational choices available to us because our son was transitioning from middle school to high school. So we were, we were sort of looking at the schools and I've been an education journalist for a long time. So I, you know, I, my big questions were, you know, what what does your grading system look like? I wasn't particularly interested in A through F grading, which is, A problem because that's what most people do at this point. Um, I also was really interested in schools that did more formative assessments and fewer cumulative or summative assessments. I was really interested in a place that would give kids um, scaffold, it would really scaffold well. So giving freshmen more support and then really sort of taking that scaffolding away as they went on. And I was really fortunate to find the high school in our district, it's sort of a regional high school. pioneered, wrote an entire book on um, standards-based grading and uh, really believes in formative assessment and um, has a real, they don't do A through F grading. They do um, uh, a standards-based curriculum and a standards-based assessment um, instead. So I was very, very fortunate in it that I was able to find that in a public school, which is unusual, but I'm really optimistic because things are moving in that direction. I spoke at the um, Association of Middle Level Education a couple of years ago, and the number of middle schools that are switching over from A through F grading to standards-based grading, which is for those people who don't know, instead of getting a report card that gives like a C or a B in English or whatever, and as a teacher, I look at that and I'm like, great, I don't know what that kid does or doesn't know. Or as to, for my own kid, I'm like, Fantastic! I don't be great. What do you know? What do you not know? Whereas a standards based um, assess a standards based grading allows you to look at skills, actual skills that a kid is supposed to know in a given year, and say either some places do like a one two three, like a one being yes has mastery and a three being no doesn't have mastery. Some places it's a binary one two kind of thing or yes no, so that I can look at that and say, oh, my kid knows how to add two fractions with a common denominator, but doesn't know how to add two fractions with a different denominator. It's, you know, actual skills. And so as a parent, that means if my kid needs help, I know exactly what my kid needs help with. And as a teacher, especially a teacher who's recently taught a lot of highly mobile kids, it allows me to know exactly where my students are and I don't have to guess, you know, I can know, oh, they know what nouns are, but they don't know what verbs are, cool. I know exactly where to start. It's a really powerful thing um, that I'm really optimistic that more, um, that we'll be seeing more of.
1: Great, it sounds like it has a lot more granular level of detail so that you can really assess someone's progress and and what they know, and a lot with a lot. And the nice
2: thing is, we're in a place where we have in the US, we have this common core curriculum. You don't have to use it, but it's there. So it can be a real nice starting place to say, oh, okay, well, this is what the common core says a kid should know in, for example, 10th grade English, what elements of grammar they're supposed to know in 10th grade English. And, oh, we agree with that, but not really with that. So let's switch these things around. But at least we have a starting place to understand, you know, what, what, we should be teaching in a given year. Because if you think about a kid that moves around a lot, um, military kids, kids in foster care, you know, they move, kids in foster care move three to four times during high school alone and lose six months of educational progress during each move. So if we could have, you know, eliminate the repetition and sort of know where kids are all the time, I mean, that's what makes for a great teacher is teaching the kids in front of you instead of the kids you sort of wish you had in a given classroom
1: hmm And how about um self-directed education? How do you Liz, tell us more about what what's your take on that?
2: You know, I, I look for things like, for example, we know um, that lecturing is a terrible way to teach. That um, yes, you know, if you have to do, you know, chemistry 101 in college, that sometimes that's the best way to not the best way, but the only way to really um, accommodate that many students at one time, but the reason that so many colleges and universities are switching, moving away from lecture-based teaching and towards small group teaching is that we know it works better. We know that more peer-to-peer teaching, more um, kids sort of being able to assimilate the information in their own time and then apply it to things tends to work better. So, Looking for you know how do you teach? do you just sort of stand there up at the front of the room and download out the contents of your brain to the kids um, or are you giving them opportunities to take ideas or projects and go out there and you know while you can it, you don't have to go all in either you know if you've ever watched the documentary most likely to wow. succeed, you know that high tech high is all project based learning, and the problem is is that you can't have one teacher wanting to do that in. Sort of in isolation. If you're going to create a school where, and I love project based learning, I think it's fantastic. At the same time, though, you know, it works at High Tech High because everyone's trained in that, everyone knows how to do it, everyone's on the same page. But at a lot of high schools, you could have one teacher doing a lot of lecturing, another teacher doing a lot of project stuff, another teacher doing, you know, a mixture of the two. And it really helps if you're in a place where you have a cohesive sort of um, philosophy about what works for teaching and what doesn't, and you're actually using evidence-based practices as opposed to, you know, oh, well, this is how I was taught, so it must be fine kind of thing, because that doesn't work for everyone, and certainly we know lecturing does not work for most kids or for most
1: people in general. Right. I heard a statistic statistic that after like 14 minutes of listening to a lecture, your brain is actually less active than when you're asleep, Mm -hmm. Yeah,
2: yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and what's so funny about that is What's so funny about that is, you know, you can do just this, it, it, let's say you do have to lecture. Well, have your kids, have the your audience just stand up for a second and just shift their weight from foot to foot. And it automatically, it'll wake up certain parts of your brain that have fallen asleep while, during the process of, and then when it comes to engagement, you know, making sure that um, what you're teaching is relevant to the kids in some way, that they're emotionally attached to what they're learning, that they know that this learning is not something that's isolated to this classroom, that it actually has application out there in the world, they might be able to use that information to improve their world and make it a better place. There's all sorts of emotional engagement that has to happen. And there's various ways to get it. It's not just about interpersonal relationships, um, but engagement and relevance and all that sort of stuff. That's the secret sauce of teaching. And so unfortunately, when you're looking for a school, it's hard to gauge individual, you know, you can't possibly look at every single teacher and make sure that every single teacher is giving your kid that, but you know, good schools know, you know, you can ask the school, you know, are you teaching based on evidence-based practices or are you just sort of, you know, hoping that the teacher remembers enough about how they, you know, learned when they were in middle school Latin class and sort of going from there? Or are these people who know their subject really well or are these people who get professional development in, uh, you know, on a regular basis and are really learning about learning in the brain? The most recent science on reading. I mean, there's a huge disconnect right now between the way we actually teach reading to kids and what works in helping kids learn to read. And, um, there's been some really great stuff recently at, um, at, oh goodness, where have they been writing about it? Um, at Oh, I'll have to send you a link. But there, there was there have been a couple of really great um, podcasts on and articles written about the science of reading and what really works and what doesn't. And and it's a huge, very combative um, topic right now. Especially if you go out there on Twitter and tweet something like how do kids learn how to read? What's the best way to do it? It'll be like, <laughs> and it'll blow up in your face because education Twitter right now is, um, arguing heartily about both sides of the, you know, phonics versus, you know, it's just, yeah.
1: Yeah. Anyway. yeah. You- <laughs> Great. Well, I'm going to check that out. Yeah. So I want to touch a tiny bit on, well, I want to, I just have so many things I want to ask you, but number one, I want to ask you, what do you predict will be kind of, you know, what will be some major shifts that we will see post COVID? Because I am, I predict, or I think that, you know, students are learning in such a different way now, and they're kind of losing those old habits and assumptions because they're all doing something different right now, you know? And so then when we go back, I feel like educators, administrators, but especially students are going to be like, wait a minute. Why are we Why are we doing it this way again? And there's going to be some big changes. It's very difficult to predict. But what do you kind of think about what's going to happen post COVID in education? You know, one of the things that has been great. Um, has been kids getting more sleep. I think that,
2: you know, I'm a huge advocate for sleep. It's sort of a no, you know, one of, it's a big family priority at our house. And so, you know, I've written about sleep as well. I've written about, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendation that schools um, should start later, especially for adolescents because of their sleep phase delay um so i think for kids finally getting enough sleep is going to be you know a big dr- i hope a driver for change cuz they're and i'm hoping that people are doing research on it as well although it's hard to tease out all the various elements that are happening in covid the other thing is i think kids have had some kids have had more autonomy at least in our house like i don't know what's going on it's happening on the computer they're you know able to work when they want to work for a little while there my kid went basically nocturnal and was doing work at night and sleeping during the day and trying things out, seeing what worked and what didn't, he had more freedom to sort of figure out what worked well for him. Um, The other thing that's been really interesting is, and I've been talking about a lot um, when I do talks to parents right now is, as parents, you know, if we know our kids really well, if we know what our kids are interested in, if we know what our kids really like to do, and and what makes learning relevant for them, we can apply those things to the learning that they're doing. So, for example, if um, if I know that my kid is just having a real block learning about fractions, but I know that my kid likes to cook, I can find ways to make fractions relevant in measuring ingredients for something, and that's that is so powerful because relevance for kids and having kids understand this isn't some abstract idea, this is about relevance, this is about, you know, cooking or, you know, being able to make those pancakes or whatever, that's really powerful. And I think that having parents also see what stumps our kids and what doesn't stump our kids, that's been in our face. We've been unable to sort of ignore what's challenging for our kids and what's easy for our kids. Um, I think that there's gonna be, I hope anyway, that there's gonna be a little more autonomy for kids in terms of when they work, how they work, in what order they work, do they work in groups, do they, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I think it's been hard for so many kids who have issues with, You know, introverted kids have had a really hard time the way you know, because we can't feel and see the kids in front of us right now. um, It's been a lot harder for teachers to gauge engagement. Mm -hmm. And so they're saying, Oh, well, if a kid has their video camera on, then they must and are looking at the camera like this, they must be engaged. But that's not necessarily the case. And you know, forcing kids to turn on their cameras, someone brought up a great point to me the other day. Teachers have been. talking a lot on Twitter, especially about um, how important it is for kids to turn their cameras on. And I totally get why, you know, a lot of teachers are like, well, they have to turn them on. I have to know if they're paying attention. But there are lots of things to think about. We're being invited into, teachers are being invited into kids' homes. Yeah. So what if you, for example, have um, a Muslim family and the mom is at home and therefore not in her head covering or the child doesn't, you know, doesn't have her head covering on, then you're asking an entire household to change the way they do things so that you can feel better about their kid maybe being engaged, so looking at how a kid is engaged and engaging relevance engaging um, not just relevance sorry but um, when a kid is actually participating, that's Mm -hmm. always been a hard thing to do, but it's even harder right now because we get so little feedback in terms of, you know, eye contact and all that kind of stuff. It's teachers are exhausted. Teachers are exhausted and the kids know it. It's stressing the kids out that their teachers are exhausted. Mm -hmm. Everyone feels it. And, um, yeah, it's, I, I'm really worried about teachers right now. I'm worried about kids, uh, really worried about kids, but I'm also just frantic about for their teachers.
1: Yeah. And another aspect of COVID, which I would love to talk about with you, um, because of your your book that's about to come out, right? About addiction. Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. that um I'm I know we're seeing where you yeah. know before it was like screen time limits, right? Yeah. And that was already hard. That's out the window. And yeah. now right yeah. so that's out the window. Right. So like kids are online constantly. And, you know, I made a decision a couple months ago to, like, let it go, and I felt a tremendous sense of relief. And I also realized that my children were connecting with others all over the world in these amazing games that they were playing, and I decided to be grateful for it instead of afraid of it. Yeah. I feel a little afraid because (laughs) you notice that it's like, you know, my son, like, doesn't want to do anything but that. And so I'm wondering, like, is this just COVID or am I enabling... An addiction, you know, to like serotonin levels that are being kicked up for that. So, like, what talk to me? How worried should I should parents be right now? Uh so first of all,
2: I the book that everyone should read, frankly, is Devorah Heitner's Screenwise. And Devorah um founded a group called Raising Digital Natives. And she's fantastic, and she's really helped me think about it think about screen time. Um, Jordan Shapiro, who wrote a book called The New Childhood, he has sort of helped shape my thinking a little bit. there's screen time and then there's screen time. And right now kids are getting their social needs, needs met mostly through screen time. So understanding that if my kid is downstairs in the basement gaming, but he also has his friends on a phone call or he's gaming with his friends, that's not just screen time, that's social time. And he's not getting it many other ways. So there's that. There's also the fact that for, you know, because they're having to spend so much time at with, with teachers and classmates and stuff like that on their computer, you know, that's not screen time. And, right. um, for, the other thing is that, you know, for example, right now, my college kid is home when he normally wouldn't be because, you know, he can't be on campus right now because his campus is closed for this January semester. Um, when my kids are downstairs playing video games together and one of them, you know, my older one's 22, my younger one's 17, that's bonding time for them and I'm not messing with that. So yeah, Is there a lot more screen time happening? Yes. Am I still holding them to other things? Like, here's how much exercise we all need to get every day, especially I live in Vermont, it gets really dark. You know, there's the chance that we're just not going to go outside at all. So that has to happen. So I don't care what you're doing with the screen time as long as these other things are getting done. So if you can separate exercise, homework, um, you know, that sort of stuff from screen time and not have those things be hand in hand or not holding one over the other you know you can't play a game until you do this sort of separating those things out um that can go a long way to you know helping you understand that you know right now we're in a a bit of a difficult place but i also you know hope that parents understand you know to give themselves a break and because right now i'm Yes, I'm worried about kids falling behind. I'm especially worried about poor kids falling behind. I'm really worried about kids who don't have internet access falling behind, but I'm more worried about their social emotional learning. So I'm going to prioritize giving giving parents and kids a break about the fact that they need that social emotional learning time. And if it's coming through screen time that you know to, to realize that that's as important right now, if not more important that they get their academic work done.
1: Okay. I hear you. Thank you. I think that's great tips for our audience. So let's just back up a little bit. You, you said Mm -hmm. not holding screen time over the other activity. Like I do, I'll be like, listen, after school. Okay. But we need to do the exercise and then you can go on and do Mm -hmm. Minecraft or whatever. You're saying that's okay or not. Okay.
2: Well, so why? I'm just out of curiosity. Why do they have to do, why not ask them which order they'd prefer to do it? are you worried that the work?
1: Oh No. Yeah. The order's fine. It's like, we agreed that Mm -hmm. because of that gets dark because there's no, you know what I mean? Like, okay, we agreed that like we do X, we would exercise X amount. So is it okay that you don't, I mean, it's not like you don't get it, but it's like, we negotiated that like screen time comes after the exercise time because otherwise it won't get done. So like, is that Okay. okay? And then I you totally know, get like, that. Uh, yeah, the so thing fine. that's it's important, the thing
2: that I think it's important for parents to remember is that, uh, for everyone to remember, is that we have about 50 years of really, really quality research and we have meta studies on it to show that extrinsic motivators like saying you can't have this until you have that or I'm going to pay you for your grades or you're grounded if you don't get a B or better or I'm going to be logging on the portal constantly and watching, you know, doing surveillance by watching what your grades are online or, um, you know, even grades themselves, which are, you know, a grade in exchange for performance, all of those extrinsic motivators, they do not work to motivate kids over the long term. They actually undermine motivation over the long term. So the best way to think about this is the less we're sort of doing the carrot and stick, the better off our kids are going to be. And, um, holding, it's sort of like if you were to say, you know, sweetie, if you get an A in math in starting, you know, now in September, you can in December have a new iPhone. Well, you're asking kids to do something that, especially younger kids, that their frontal lobes just can't handle, which is to hold this long-term exchange goods in exchange for performance. There's so many reasons that it doesn't work. But the reality is, is that When we use extrinsic motivators of any kind, control, you know, an exchange of love and, you know, saying, you know, giving our kids lots of praise and loving them more when they get high grades versus when they get low grades, all of those things actually undermine their motivation, they do not promote motivation; they actually undermine motivation, and they 're tricky because they work in the short term so um, you know feel free to use it as a one off that kind of thing, or if your rule is you know you have to do the exercise before you do the screen time because the sun is going to go down at four o'clock in the afternoon or three thirty in the afternoon, and so it just makes sense that way, that makes sense to me, but more often than not i 'm going to try to err on the side of not saying, if you, if you do this thing I want you to do, I'll give you this. Because over the long term, it's going to backfire. It's not going to work. It's going and to undermine their motivation.
1: What's a, better, what's a better way?
2: So overall, the better way, and this is really what's at the heart of Gift of Failure, is to try to build their intrinsic motivation to want to do the thing for the sake of the thing itself, which sounds like some Pollyanna crazy talk. But the way you get that, is by, by giving them three things. First, autonomy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as long as, so for example, if you say, look, your job right now is to get your homework done, to show up for your classes and get your homework done. The details of that, as much as is developmentally possible, developmentally appropriate, is to leave the details to them. Or talk to them about the details. Sweetie, I've always, for example, like coming home from school, and if you were to say to your kids, which I did one time, I said, you know, in your perfect homework day, when, what would that look, what would your perfect homework day look like? And you can't say, There isn't any, but what would it look like? And one kid said, I would want to come home and run around outside and play because I've just had to sit still at school all day long, or I've had to sit in front of a Zoom computer all day long. I can't just go straight to the homework. I don't, and and we need to understand also that um, self-control is a limited uh, quantity. It's not like we have unlimited self-control when it comes to kids. There's, uh, there are really good studies on that. Um, And then my other kid- Right. Willpower and my a limited kid, resource. Absolutely. And then my other kid said, Well, no, I want to get my homework done right away because then I want to be able to be free from that mentally and be able to do stuff that I enjoy. And I wouldn't have known that they had two very different approaches to it. And if I had just shoehorned them both into the same approach, one kid is going to be, you know, miffed all the time and less motivated to do his work. So giving kids a little more autonomy, letting them control the details, um, you know, giving really clear expectations. Talking about really clear consequences and then letting them have some control over the details that's autonomy number two is competence helping feel kids feel more competent and not just confident like not saying you know constantly oh but you're so smart you're so talented you're so gifted it'll all be great because you'll be blah blah this very empty sort of optimism thing but helping kids um, you know get through something, letting them screw up, letting them try again supporting them through that learning process so Autonomy, competence, and then connection. And for parents, it's super simple. It's loving the kid you had, not the you have, not the kid you wish you had, and not just loving them based on their performance. And that connection of knowing them knowing that you're there for them, no matter what, that what you care about is the learning, and what you understand about this learning process is that it's a long-term thing, that it's not like this homework assignment. It's a long-term thing. So if this goes wrong. What are we going to do differently next time? How are we going to, what are we going to change so that something goes differently next time, whether it's better or worse? And those three things are what really do uh, prime us for, for having intrinsic motivation to do, to do whatever it is we need to do. And being more controlling of kids has the opposite effect. It undermines their motivation to want to do the things
1: that we're trying to get them to do. Okay. Thank you so much. So you're so about addiction and screen time currently during COVID. It sounds like you're saying that um, screen time is, is like a coping skill in many ways, like social, emotional, like, like you said, screen time, not all screen time is equal. And so you feel that after COVID once normal sports, normal socialization and all that stuff is reinstated the children will be, it's like that that addiction study, the Rat Park addiction study. Rat Park, yeah. So it's yeah, like exactly. now that they have Rat Park again, they'll be like, take me to Rat Park right. where I can connect and be social right. and be outside and be in the sun and all that. And then, right. um, and then that addiction problem will take care of itself because they will have options to choose from that are more attractive than yeah. Minecraft.
2: Well, and- for those who don't know about Rat Park, I mean, essentially, you know, rats with nothing to do in these boring cages, you know, for a long time, we thought that rats will always choose the cocaine solution or the sugar solution or whatever over the water. Um, but then someone thought to do another study where they gave the rats lots of interesting, fun things to do and, and let them be social. And suddenly not as many of them were choosing the, you know, the water or the sugar or the cocaine or whatever it was that their, their drug of choice was. Um, and that's absolutely true. But I think all also a lot of it comes down to control. Right now, kids feel incredibly helpless and the amount of control they had before is even less now because they can't go see their friends. They can't go do, I mean, I have a kid, I have a 17 year old kid who's just, you know, starting to get into that age with like the whole dating, you know, that can't happen. So, you know, all of this control is being taken away from them. And so, One of the things that will come back with time, hopefully, is a sense of control over their immediate environment. And so a lot of things I've let go during this COVID thing, like if my kids' rooms are messy, that is totally their business. I have no interest in what's going on in their room because that is the one space in their lives they have control over. I'm giving them, you know, the whole screen time thing has changed a little bit. Um, There are still expectations in our house, and we still have consequences if you don't meet those expectations, but um, anywhere it's possible for me to give my kids a little more autonomy right now, I'm giving it to them, mainly because this lack of control is feeding this thing called learned helplessness, where- Mm -hmm. You know as human beings, if we're faced with long term pain or suffering, we tend our our default sort of um instinct is to go into a ball and go helpless. but the way to short circuit that the way to make that not happen is to give control back to the subject so giving control to kids will help them feel less out of control if you know what i'm if you sort of understand what I'm trying to get at, yeah, so I one do. of the things that I'm hoping happens is that outside stuff will come back, sports will come back, all that sort of stuff. And parents will be able to let go of knowing where their kids are every single second of the day and let them have some control and autonomy back in their lives. And hopefully some of that learned helplessness will take care of itself. I'm hoping, and the screen time and, you know, a lot of other things that people are doing to cope and, you know, alcohol consumption has gone up. It's hard to know exactly what's going on with kids right now. Um, we're, I think it's going to be interesting to see like two years out, three years out when we have the results of sort of looking back at what went on during this time. Um, but you know, pre COVID, we were in a great place. Drug and alcohol use among kids was way down with the exception of vaping. So, you know, alcohol use, all that stuff was really in a nice downward trajectory. But um, you know, COVID's really messing around with a lot of people's heads, and it's been a very difficult time. As a woman in recovery, it's been a very difficult time to stay sober and to find outlets that are um, not, you know, out of a bottle or a, or pills. So it's, you know, I'm I'm worried about the kids right now, but I'm hoping that when things get back to normal, that we'll reestablish some, some rhythms we had before this and things will sort of head back in the right direction.
1: I hope so too. Um, thank you. That's very, you're so welcome. Yeah, this has been great. I just, ever since I heard your, your midlife mixtape, um, interview, (laughs) I really was like, Hoping to be able to talk to you. So this is really kind of a peak experience and a dream come true So I'm really, really well curious, I do so
2: I do have one or two other books I want to recommend just that two would more. also be helpful. Um, so I was talking about kids being self-driven There's a book called the self-driven child by Ned Johnson and Bill Stixrud. Um It really is about helping kids get the get things into their own sort of gear moving forward on their own instead of us being like okay do this okay do that and it's being self-driven is really really important for kids to learn how to do and then for things that are going really bad at home right now, Catherine Reynolds Lewis, the new, the good news about bad behavior. Um, you know, when kids screw up, sometimes there's a very good reason for it and understanding where it's coming from and how to use that knowledge to, you know, to improve parenting and our relationships is really great. For parents of younger kids who... Um, And you want to help them sort of do more around the house and know how to do some of those adulting skills that they're going to have to know how to do. Catherine Newman wrote this wonderful book called How to Be a Person. And by the way, I just saw the version of it that's going to go out into this wonderful small Jewish press, and it's called How to Be a Mensch. uh, (laughs) But this one is How to Be a Person. And this this book is so great because it's about things like how to vacuum, how to... Tie a necktie, how to write a letter, how to save money. All of these really practical things aimed at kids like eight to 12. Um, And then I do have to give a shout out because my addiction book comes out in, on April 6th, but so does another book by one of my favorite people, Julie Lithcott Hames, who wrote how to raise an adult. Uh, He has a new book coming out that is the sequel kind of to this, but for the kids called Your Turn. How to be an adult, and it's going to be almost 500 pages, and it's going to have like essentially how to figure out who you are, what you want in the world, how to go out in the world and get it, and have your voice be heard, and be who you are, and be an adult. I'm so excited to get my hands on that book, and it'll be out um, April 6th as well. So that's for older um, kids. This one's for younger kids. How to how to be an adult will be for you know late teens, early 20s. This is for younger kids both really good resources for, for parents to sort of help their kid. You know, it's a great time right now to say, look, why don't you uh, go write some thank you notes to grandma and grandpa for your birthday present. Here's a book that'll tell you how to do it.
1: Right. (laughs) So yeah, I've been, I've been recommending that book all over the place. Thank you. Thank you. Have you read Unschooling Rules by Clark? Yeah. Yeah, That's a great book. Yeah. And yep. then here this one is The Courage to Grow by Laura Sanderfart. Yep. This is all about yep. the action way. And that's mm-hmm. so that's a great book. Yep. Have you had a chance to read that? Cause I would love to send it to you. I would love to read it. I have not read it yet. All right. I would all love to read right. it
2: though. Way. Well, and if, if anyone's interested in any of the books that I mentioned before, I actually keep a bibliography. Um, if you go to com under speaking, there's okay. a button that says download speaking bibliography. And it's a PDF that goes to all of these books, goes to a series of um, YouTube videos I made, frequently asked questions about the gift of failure, a bunch of you know, things like YouTube educators that I love that help make learning relevant for kids, everyone from Vsauce to Emily Grassley's The Brain Scoop and Learning Every Day, Smarter Every Day, um, all kinds of resources like that. So Leahy.com speaking, and there's a big button, Download Speaking Bibliography.
1: Fantastic. I'm, I'm going to send that out to the parents at, at my school. I'm sure they'll be really grateful to well, get and that. I will e- I'll email it to you so you have it. Okay. You're the best. Have you seen, well, two things. I talked to um, Esther Wojcicki the other week who Uh wrote, you know, how to raise successful people. And we were laughing because she said that there's a class at Berkeley now called adulting 101 because kids come and they don't know how to do their laundry. So we were having a funny, Yeah, I I was on a panel
2: with her earlier this summer and we had such a good time. She's lovely. Yeah. She's lovely. She's great. Yeah. She's great. And there's a there's a book called Middle School Matters by Phyllis Fagel, F-A-G-E-L-L. And she so gets middle school kids. So if you're sort of having trouble right now, sort of understanding your middle school kid and, and what they're all about, Middle School Matters is a great book for that right now.
1: Nice. That's awesome. Um, oh, I was going to tell you, there's a guy on YouTube or on Facebook I saw that He does that where he teaches kids on video how to tie a necktie, how to change a tire, like dad school, right? So yes, yes. I've seen that too. Absolutely. So so sweet. Absolutely. Such great resources. So, well, this has been absolutely wonderful. I'm sure our audience has learned so much. It will help them be more autonomy supportive parents and less directive because so important for our learners. And uh, just really appreciate talking to you. So if they want to find your stuff, it's com is where they could go Jessica directly Leahy, yep. to find all your awesomeness. They can find everything there. Um, I'm on Twitter a lot
2: because as a profession, teachers are one of the biggest, they're some of the biggest users of Twitter. So I'm over
1: on Twitter a lot. And Education Twitter is a pretty fantastic place, I have to say. Cool. I'm going to follow you on Twitter right when we get off this call. And Excellent. Um, so great. Well, this has been awesome. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. Great. All right. Thank you. All right. Take care, Jessica. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to The New Schools Podcast. Tell a friend. Previous episodes and show notes, including any books or websites our guests recommend, can be found at thenewschools.com. If you're a parent who is looking for a new school for your family, send us a message. We would love to help. We can answer questions, share the resources we have, and help you get in touch with people in your area who are on the same path, determined to provide their kids with the best education. It's wildly important work. Thank you for doing it. And we'll see you next time.